Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we read from Nehemiah chapter 10. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malchijah, Hattush, Shabaniah, Malak, Harim, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathan, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Maijamin, Maziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah, these are the priests. And the Levites, Yeshua the son of Azaniah, Benui of the sons of Hinnadad, Kadmiel, and their brothers Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalida, Peleah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beninu. The chiefs of the people, Parosh, Pahath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Azgat, Babai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Adin, Eter, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashum, Bezai, Harif, Anathoth, Nabai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hazir, Meshezabel, Zadok, Jedua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Anea, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Helohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hash, Hashabna, Messiah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Harim, Bena. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God and to observe and do all the commandments of Yahweh our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering, to bring it into the house of our God according to our fathers' houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of Yahweh our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of Yahweh, also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priest, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse, 
For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Today's chapter starts out by reminding us of the covenant that they made in chapter 9, verse 38. Yesterday we did not get to talk about it because we ran out of time. So just briefly on that idea, they essentially are re-upping the covenant. God made a covenant with his people on Mount Sinai when he gave them the law. What you know of today primarily is everything we see throughout the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They here are agreeing that they are going to bind themselves to that same covenant that God once made with his, his holy people of Israel. Many of them are going to sign that. They're going to put their seals on that document as it is sealed, their names. So we've got, well, actually only probably a couple of names that we recognize, and that would be Nehemiah, after whom we're reading the book, and Hananiah, the one who has been described in the book already as being, well, of, of fear of the Lord and good faith. But the rest of the names that will sound familiar to you, like Zedekiah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Peshur, Obadiah, Daniel, Yeshua, Micah, Hezekiah, Zadok, Adonijah, those are names that will probably at least sound, some of them sound familiar to you or to your family members. None of those, from as far as I can tell, are likely to be the, the names of the guys that you actually know. So like that's not the Jeremiah that you know. It's not the Daniel that you know. Those men have, have deceased already. But the names are common enough in the land of Israel. Like you might name your child after someone that you respected. So these men have been named after people their parents respected. And also because the names themselves have meaning. Like we've talked about Yeshua, for example, meaning he saves. That's a good name for your child. You're trusting that God will save you. So you name your child that. That is the name by which we get Jesus today. I'm really the only note then on that first section, verses 1 all the way through 27, is that you have three groups of people from whom these signatures come. You've got the priests, the Levites, and then the chiefs of the people, so the leaders, the heads of houses. Those are the ones signing this thing. But as you move into the next paragraph, then you have the rest of the people, which includes the rest of the priests, the rest of the Levites. It includes all those who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land. That's chapter 9, verse 2 that we saw that, that they separated themselves out from those who would, would have been considered foreigners, in a sense. They are separating themselves out to follow the law. And we actually see here they are binding themselves to it. Not in a covenantal way, but still a very solid and strong bind. Binding? Bound? They are under curse and oath. So they're taking an oath that they are going to live by the law of God, and they are thus putting themselves under the right of the Lord to curse them if they fail. strong language. That's a strong thing to do. And in some ways, it's a good thing to bind yourself to the law of God. 
in a sense, there's even benefit to that in our time today. Not that we're people who are under the law, but that the law of God is simply good. I mean, you think of the Ten Commandments primarily in the church today, still part of our catechism. If you had the opportunity to live in one of two cities, we'll call them City A and City B. In City A, people are free to do whatever they please. There is no penalty for murder, so they kill whenever they want. They take whoever's spouses they want for themselves, uh, very promiscuous in that way. They can take whatever they want of your belongings. It doesn't really matter. You can take theirs too. Theft is not a crime. Or City B, where no one ever kills another person. No one ever commits adultery or cheats on their spouse. And no one ever steals. You have the opportunity to move to A or B. Which one are you going to move to? I mean, for most people, there are some who would pick City A, but for most people, City B is the the easy choice between the two. And that's just three of the commandments of God, right? You think of, what did I just say? <laughs> um, commandments 5, 6, and 7 that I used as a, the example there. So there is good in us following God's law. What we see here is going to be several examples as we move forward. So what laws are they going to follow? Well, verse 30 is from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, that they don't marry people from outside of Israel. And this has been a giant part of the problem to begin with for them, is that when you do this, you are inviting false gods into your midst because that person, that, that child that you bring in as you marry your families together, they are bringing in their history. They are bringing in their pagan worship that they've been doing all that time. And we see this. I mean, go reflect. I think it's 1 Kings chapter 10 on what happens to Solomon. Maybe it's 1 Kings 11 because of all of his many wives. In short, he built altars for them so that they could worship their false gods. And we learn from that chapter that they led him astray from the true faith in the true God. That's the danger there. So they agree not to do that. And then you get basically the law about the Sabbath, one of the commandments, third commandment, that they aren't going to buy and sell from people on the Sabbath. They already themselves don't set up a market on the Sabbath because that would be work. They're not to do that. But additionally, even when people come in among us to sell stuff on the Sabbath, we won't buy because that's making them work. It's making us work to buy and carry and, and whatnot. This actually historically was a practice in many communities, modern times, right? Um, maybe some of the older people listening to the podcast will remember that. Or maybe you can talk to your parents or your grandparents and see if they remember those days when stores weren't open on Sunday. There's a couple of holdouts, right? Hobby Lobby, Chick-fil-A in our era today. But for the most part, those ideas are a thing of the past. It's not that we, again, are bound to this law, that we must do this ourselves, but there is benefit in rest. And if you look around you, we need it. We are an over overworked people. And I don't even know that overworked is the right way to say that. That's why I hesitated. We are an overburdened and over troubled people. We are anxious about everything because we don't rest. We don't know how to rest. Even the things that we think are restful stress us out. 
we really got to stop and think that one through. But back to the text and to the various laws that we're talking about here. They're going to forego the crops of the seventh year. That's a tough one. It's Exodus 23, verse 10. What's this about? Trust. If you don't grow crops in the seventh year, every seventh year, so you grow for six years, you take a year off, do you trust that the Lord will provide for you and for your family? It's the same with the Sabbath rest. It's the same with the tithe. The Lord gave many different things to his people to force them to trust him, to teach them to trust him. And this is one of them. It's a tough one. I mean, can you imagine taking an entire year off of work and trusting that the Lord would somehow provide for you? Now, we don't have the same promise in such a way because we are no longer this, this nation state that Israel was under God's command. But there's still something to be said for the, the concept, again, of trusting in God above all things rather than works of our own hands. Then the exaction of every debt. This is Deuteronomy 15. That they're not to drive their own brothers into poverty. There's a lot about that in the Old Testament as well. Then they're going to give a third part yearly of a shekel for the service of the house of God. So upkeep of temple and worship. All the sacrifices, all the practices of the temple, they need supplies. So that money can be used for that. It also I mean, wear and tear on a building. If you have a home, you understand that, that, right? I mean, there's always more work to be done. There are many times in the Old Testament where we actually see in the book, like in the books of Kings, how the temple has gone into disrepair because they weren't doing it. So here they're going to up, they're going to take on that upkeep. Then we have verse 34. They cast lots to bring in the wood offering. That might go to Leviticus 6, verses 12 and 13, where the the altar, the altar of burnt offering that was in the temple courtyard, was to be burning continually. They were not to let that fire go out. Interestingly enough, there's a connection to that today in the church. There is a fire that burns in the church that does not go out, in many of our traditional congregations at least. See if your children know what that fire is. Do you know where there's a fire in our church that's always burning? Now, snarky parents might go to that little uh, pilot light in the furnace. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the eternal candle, that red vase with a candle inside of it that is in your congregation. If you're not aware of one, look for it this weekend. Maybe, maybe you've just not noticed it before. Maybe your child hasn't noticed it before. Or maybe your church doesn't have one, but many churches do. So take a look for that one. But back to the text again. Casting lots for the wood offering. Would that be, and this is a question for your children, would you want your name drawn? If it were a, like a contest here. You know, like the drawing the short stick thing to see who goes or, or playing rock, paper, scissors to see who gets to do it or has to do it. That's kind of the question, I guess. Would you want to do this? Is it a, oh, I have to do this thing? Or is it a privilege and an honor to get to do this? Do you want to be the one who has to bring the wood for the Lord's house? Or is it kind of a burden? It's an interesting perspective to consider. When we're serving the Lord, this is not a burden. Everything that we have is something he gave to us himself already. It's all his. 
We're just returning it back to him, which is another thing of trust, the tithe itself, that we would give to the Lord knowing that he will still care for us. So I would see this, that they cast lots to see who would get to, be the way I'd read that text. Then verse 35, they're going to offer the first fruits of the ground. That's Exodus 23 to verse 19. And then all the trees, they're going to offer the firstborn of their sons and their cattle. That's Exodus 13. They're going to offer the firstborn, uh, the first of the dough. I guess it's not born. Uh, and the fruit, the wine, the oil, first of everything. The point of this, again, first is the tithe. It, it's the idea that the Lord will provide. Do I trust if I give him my best? Do I trust if I give him the first that there will be a second and a third that he'll provide? That's the question here. That's the challenge to wrestle with. It's the task that they're taking up. Now, with the firstborn son, you had to redeem that child. You didn't just like offer him up as an offering to the Lord. You would actually make a sacrifice on behalf of the child in order to then redeem the child to take home. You could make such a sacrifice also for the firstborn of an animal if you wanted to, specific animals at least, or you could let them go to the Lord. All right, um, let's see here. It brings us down to verse 37, that these things are brought to the Levites to support them. So the Levites don't have their own land. They don't get to grow food. They don't get to care for livestock. They're caring for the Lord's house. And so these tithes of the regular people are then the contribution that feeds the Levites. The Levites themselves, as we're going to see in verse 38, they tithe. So they tithe the tithe. They too are taught to trust in the Lord to provide for them. And those tithes, all these offerings of firstborn things or first fruit things, are brought into the temple storage rooms. So there's different chambers described as being around the temple. They're stored in those places. The last note, we will not neglect the house of our God. This is one. So this is their promise. This is good care for the Lord's house. Now, ultimately, the Lord's house is going to be Jesus. That's New Testament theology there. But what we want to get here is a conversation with our families, conversation with our children. What does this look like today? What does it look like to care for the Lord's house today? Your pastor is not a Levite. His responsibility, his job is not to care for the upkeep of the building where the people gather in your community. Whose job is that? Maybe you have a a properties person that takes care of it. Maybe your church has trustees. Maybe it's just something where families take turns. Or who knows? You know. Or if you don't know, you can find out at your local congregation that you are a part of. How do you serve to care for the Lord's house? And this is something that your children can do, that you as a family can do together. And it's a privilege, it's an honor to care for the things that belong to the Lord. And that can be said of anything, right? As a parent, your children are something that it is an honor to serve the Lord as you care for them, as he's entrusted them to you. So it can be said for many things, but specifically in our text today, it's the house of God. How do we care for what the Lord has given to us as good? Let us praise the Word incarnate, Christ who suffered in our place. Jesus died and rose victorious, that we may know God by grace. Let us sing for joy and glad.
praise the one.